0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something.
1: Welcome, listeners, to the 150th episode of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Aaron, and with me to discuss the live-action CGI film adaptation of the classic cyberpunk manga, Alita Battle Angel, is my best friend and co-host Patrick.
0: That's a lot of words there, my friend, but hello anyway.
1: <laughs> Gotta keep it complicated right off the bat, right?
0: Well, we did do the Lego Batman, the two, the second part, the movie we covered the week ago.
1: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because this film actually, the original anime is called Battle Angel. Uh, I believe the anime itself, the manga, or whatever it's called, Battle Angel Alita. But for some reason, they just had to put a flipping quotation or a uh, semicolon colon in it. See, I can't even figure out what the punctuation is. I'm so flustered. They were um, thinking
0: about you, sir.
1: They were. James was like, you know what? I'm going to find a way to annoy all of the podcasters and all of the media reviewers out there that have to write this title over and over again. So we're just going to put a colon in there to make it more difficult.
0: We should we should seek out the rest of the movies we're gonna cover this year that have colons and boycott them, or at least call the uh the title makers and be like, Hey, I just wish let you know, we're we can't
1: because the world revolves around sequels and properties that are like spin-offs, and because of that, like half the titles that we cover have colons. Exactly. It's so
0: dumb. Spider Man, Colon, Far From Home. Spoiler yeah. alert, we're covering that.
1: There's a lot, man, I'm
0: telling you. Captain Marvel, colon the first girl. No, that's not right. That could work. Anyway,
1: in January, we took a journey through four of James Cameron's most classic films. And now here we are talking about another movie that he was heavily involved in. Only this time, just from a writer and production standpoint and not in the director's seat. That honor went to Robert Rodriguez of Sin City, From Dusk Till Dawn, Desperado, Spy Kids, and my personal favorite of his... Sharkboy, and Lava Girl fame. Uh, Alita carries a giant budget of $170 million, and it's another hugely ambitious visual blockbuster from Mr. Cameron. Now, Patrick and I are both on record as generally being very big fans of his work, so do we think Alita is another feather in his cap, or do we think it's a stain on his legacy, or somewhere in between? Because unlike the modern social media world we do believe in the middle ground when it comes to movies (laughs) I guess you'll have to stick around to find out and with that said here is your obligatory spoiler warning we have seen the movie and we are going to talk about it in depth if you have not yet seen it or if you don't have familiarity with the original source material and you don't want your experience to be impacted negatively we suggest you turn away now and come back after you go and see the film so off we go. All right. Well, we like to get started as usual with one word takeaways.
0: Wee, boy. There's nothing significant movie wise about that. That's an inside joke and you guys get to hear the uh, end result of that. Yeah. Maybe we'll find out who
1: actually listened to the podcast if they ask us about us, ask us about that off.
0: There we go. Drop a little, a little hint each episode and being yeah. like, Hey, if you listen to the podcast, say the secret word. <laughs> Take takeaways. Okay. Takeaways.
1: Well, I'm going to go first, Patrick, if you do not mind. Go for it. (sighs) All right. The word that I came out of the theater immediately within my head was wanting. This word has lingered with me for a couple days now, and it really is because I just left wanting more. Alita delivered on the visual spectacle that Cameron is known for, as expected probably was really never any doubt about that. But everything else for me just never quite clicked into place in a way that gave me a memorable experience. I wanted more character development. I wanted to know more details about the world and its class systems. I wanted to understand the passage of time and how it impacted the film's events I wanted more of that shocking big villain reveal and more time to get to know the lesser ones. I wanted a longer runtime, honestly, so that the pacing could slow down and allow maybe for the creation of some emotional investment. I really just wanted to feel more than I did. I was definitely intrigued by this world and its inhabitants and Even though some of these feelings were of disappointment, some were also positive. I would gladly watch an anime or a live-action series of this material if it had this sort of production value. And I'm not even opposed to seeing this film's potential sequels. But sadly, the lingering feeling was just that I wanted more. And because of that, I didn't quite enjoy this as much as I'd hoped.
0: Well, I'm glad you weren't the only one who had that same kind of reaction. There was a lot of the movie left to be desired for me. And the word that I came away thinking about was incomplete. And it kind of ties into the fact that we have these really cool half human, half cyborg inhabitants. And it makes a lot of sense to call my my reaction to that incomplete. There's a lot to like and there's not a lot not to like. And a good movie for me like most people, has more likes than dislikes. And the more dislikes you have, the less you can, you know, the less things you don't call attention to. And I felt like I got very little of a lot of these different subplots that you sort of alluded to, but nothing seemed to pay itself off. When I began to get intrigued by one part of the narrative, we shift to another one. And it's as if I was watching this dystopian soap opera. (laughs) And by the end of the movie, I left the theater feeling like I'd gone through experiencing a CGI version of Days of Our Lives or something like that. Because that's what happens. You live with a cliffhanger, a constant cliffhanger, because it's a show that never ends. Soap operas do that. And like you, there was this decent amount that I enjoyed, but nothing really felt finished. Like even the ending didn't feel like it stuck the landing. It felt like it was kind of placed there to say, hey there was going to be more. And I was thinking, well, good, because I don't know that I got any completion of anything outside of the couple of things that I didn't really care as much for. And I remember specifically thinking, I am excited for a sequel more than I have been in a while, but not because its predecessor was really amazing. It's as if, oh, that part I really liked. So let me get more of that. Oh wait, you're rolling the credits. Never mind. And it was, um, it was tough for me. Honestly, it was tough for me to leave feeling like I was really satisfied. Plus it was late at night and Mm -hmm. that didn't really have much of a great impact for me, but, um, you know, we're a show that likes to keep things positive and I, there's a lot of stuff in there that, that I think is really enjoyable too.
1: Well, we're going to talk about that good stuff, but we also like to keep things honest. So, we're going to probably talk about some of the things that we don't like as much either. Um, but they'll just come up in the natural flow of the way that we like to discuss our movies. Uh, and, and I want to start, Patrick, by talking about expectations, because we both had, I would say, relatively high expectations for this film or somewhat excited for it, just based on the fact that James Cameron was involved and it was kind of coming on the heels of that director month that we did in January 2019. It just seemed to kind of be perfectly timed for us and it's like a holdover until the avatar movies come out so I'm curious if you had any familiarity at all with the source material and what what were you expecting to be done differently that you didn't get like how did it not live up to your expectations I guess is what I'm asking you
0: well in a lot of ways it did my expectations weren't insanely high because I was not familiar with the property but the thing that James Cameron month, really made me realize is that he cares enough about his visuals and not just the CGI specifically, but how the visual impact of a movie can affect its audience. And I love how by about 10 minutes into this film, I was completely ignorant of the fact that things were digital Like, I chose to willingly believe this world that I was seeing. And I think that Cameron is very consistent in making sure that the worlds that he invites us into, whether via the director's chair or from a writing or producing standpoint, are are very much inviting and they're very much intriguing. Titanic's that way. The world of Terminator's that way. True Lies is that way in some ways. And I think that it was the thing, it was the thread throughout the narrative that kept me in the movie. Um, and I I wasn't disappointed in that. Where I was disappointed a little bit was the fact that if I don't know much about a property, I feel like that leaves me pretty open minded about the story itself. Unless you're talking about epic fantasy, in which you're probably leaving me in a negative place to start with, because that's not my genre. But the same thing is with Westerns. And I've had a really great reaction to some of the some of the Westerns that you've pushed to me. So I think that where I was really disappointed was in the fact that I didn't like the story. And it wasn't necessarily like, well, it technically wasn't this way or it technically wasn't that way, but it was the way in which it was told. Which could be called pacing or whatever. It, it just didn't feel enjoyable to watch and enjoy the whole narrative. Like there were enough pieces about it that were really great, but when you try to thread them together, it just didn't work for me. I didn't spend enough time in one place to invest myself in that particular narrative.
1: Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And I think, I think we're going to get into that when we start talking about the various pieces of the story. And why they necessarily don't work together, but potentially have value independently at the same time. I think there's an editing issue with this film as well. Like, like I think that's what you're getting. The pacing, I think the pacing is a good word. It's very odd. It is very different. It, it, when I say odd, though, it is very odd for a normal moviegoer. Now, going off of my expectations, I, I knew that this was based on a manga and a live-action anime that had occurred somewhere down the line. I didn't know if it was a series or a movie or what, but I knew they'd adapted it before. And I watch anime, so I think that the difference between us going into this is I knew what a live-action anime from James Cameron might look like and how the pacing and the editing might work. And this is very much that, to be honest, So with my expectations, I had, I got kind of a two part story here for you. The first is that, you know, I went into this like you, not knowing anything. I chose not to research. I didn't read up on it. All I knew was what I saw in one trailer. I was pretty intrigued by that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let James Cameron impress me or I'm going to give him the, the ability to tell his story and I'm going to go see what that turns out to be. And I mostly enjoyed. Going into this movie with that in mind. It was it was fun that way for me. The visuals definitely met my expectations. Like you mentioned. I mean, hands down, there was really no question about that. They were gonna blow us away. And frankly, I, I think that it was just some of the most incredible stuff I've ever seen. Um I love that you mentioned that you kind of believed it was real. That's that's pretty awesome. And, and that speaks to how immersive it is. And um I, you know I I like you I guess for me, the expectation was just to have a more flowing story that I could be attached to all the way throughout, and I didn't feel that way either. I felt disjointed to me. The other side, though, of my expectations here is I I actually now have some new background. So in the interim, or in the aftermath, I guess I should say, after seeing the film, I took some time to go and seek out the original anime from 1993. And what that was, was a pair of two small videos they used to put out in the 80s and the 90s. Um, they were like 30-minute kind of episodes. And what I discovered was basically the source material that James Cameron adapted almost beat for beat. It's It's actually pretty uncanny, to be honest, just how well it perfectly goes in line with this 1993 hour-long anime. Certain lines are exactly the same. Scene framings, exactly the same. I-, I was pretty blown away by it. And while that's kind of cool, I noticed in my head, I was like, man, that's neat. I was noticing how similar they were. At the same time, I realized that it's also disjointed. And I- I had the same problems with the original anime that I did with the live action, and that's because it was adapted exactly like it and it was a inconsistent flow, the same kind of thing and What I came out of this with was this question Patrick was we always talk about like how faithful is an adaptation it's like the number one question when a book or movie gets you know a book gets turned into a movie or something maybe that's not the right question to be asking because. Does a faithful adaptation mean a film is good? I don't think it does, because so, if you're adapting something that is already a poor version of something, like in this case, and you're adapting it the same way, then it keeps those qualities, and I don't think that that's a fair way to judge a film.
0: So let me let me push back a little bit on that, and let me toot my own horn by talking about in the last two or three, ten years, whatever. I'm not gonna. I'm terrible with time. Just ask my wife. Um, when it comes to book to movie adaptations, I've learned to be a lot more forgiving. I've said this before with a movie's adaptation from book source material. First of all, Elite is, a, I think, a four volume comic. It's a manga comic, first and foremost. And so you can make the argument that Cameron adapted from the wrong source material <laughs> as opposed to the four volume. Which I haven't read, so I'm, you know, this is only a quick Google search of me going, oh, okay, so it's really long. I mean, it's not, it's not just 32 pages of a comic that we're adapting here, or even 64 or 96. I mean, it's a lot. So I would believe that the anime edition, the anime adaptation was truncated from that. Because that's the original source material. Would I be correct in saying that, you think?
1: It was. It's well known, and, and there are some, Complaints about that as well because they changed a whole bunch of things from the anime – from the, sorry, from the manga to make the anime. Basically what these OVAs were in 1993, these two episodes of this show, mm-hmm. were almost like – seriously like commercials for the manga itself. Okay. It, it kind of condensed two volumes of the manga into one story and crammed it in there. And I was like, man, that's exactly
0: what we just saw. And that's yeah. what
1: Alita felt like was like a commercial for something bigger. And more thorough.
0: So this is what I think. I mean, you can make, I'll make two observations. The first is that I felt like this would be a great TV series. And I think that that's what we're getting is, if the TV series represented the manga, then this movie represented the longest trailer for that TV series. Or at least kind of a primer for it, like a great pilot. Well, not a great pilot, a decent pilot. But back to my original point, I think a good adaptation should include consistency with the source material in terms of its narrative and its characters. And I think that where this movie didn't succeed is the fact that much like Zack Snyder's criticism for Watchmen, it adapted too faithfully. And there is the, there is the reality that that happens because what happens is Just like when you read a book and the book's words on the paper, they're at the mercy of the person's imagination. Now you're trying to adapt what's on paper visually or textually to the big screen. And you have got to be aware of that as a creator, that not only can certain things exist or not exist in the movie adaptation because of time or technology constraints but you have to understand who your audience is. And I think this is where Ready Player One really made a great statement in the differences between it and its book counterpart. Because Spielberg, I believe, understood who his audience was, he knew what time period he was adapting this for, and he knew what could work on the big screen. And that there were certain elements of Ready Player One that if you watch them would not be as effective as if you were reading the book. And I think that there may be some of that going on with this. Now that you're telling me about this, I feel like Cameron and Rodriguez adapted the wrong source material personally. It would have been more beneficial to me, it sounds like, if they would have read the four volumes, which they may have, and adapted a story from those four volumes, or at least from the first volume. And If we're going to be setting us up for a sequel, that makes more sense to me.
1: Yeah, I wish it would have been more true to that as well. And I think that it hinders the film overall, because of that. Now, I will also say, and I'm trying to be fair here, because it feels like a live action anime in a way that I don't know that I've ever seen before. That is to say, it's it's an accurate way in which anime flows. So a lot of anime works like this. It has ridiculous dialogue and weird pacing and way melodramatic moments popped in at the wrong times, quote unquote, wrong times. So people that love anime, a lot of folks are responding really well to this because they're used to this fine kind of storytelling. Those that are not are going to be very, very jarred by it.
0: Yeah, and, and I completely understand that. And I'm okay saying that I'm not the audience for it. I mean, there was enough about it that made me go, Yeah, this isn't for me because this feels overly intentional in some of the ridiculousness. And so I'm okay with saying that's not for me.
1: Right. And I think what we both would agree is that the point is for James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez, if you're going to take one hundred seventy million dollars of the studio's money to adapt this film and make it into a blockbuster, then it probably needs to go closer to what a general audience is going to accept. And be less traditional. We've kind of come full circle on this, um, or less faithful, so to speak. Um, you've got, you got to play to your audience. Now, if you really, if you think that your anime loving only audience can make you enough money to, to create this successful franchise, then that's a risk you're going to, that you can take, but we we shall see how, I mean, we don't know yet. I mean, this could, this could do bang, gangbusters overseas. I don't know. It very well, it very well might. Um, but we'll find out. Well, we clearly love, the action in this and the visual CGI work. It's really, truly incredible. So I want to start there. What action sequences and production design aspects stood out to you the most?
0: Uh, motorball. That's all I got to say. Motorball. It's Look, I was a big fan of the original Rollerball starring James Caan uh, back in like the 60s or 70s, even though I wasn't around back then. I got a chance to see it when uh, my dad introduced me to it. And I love that. I mean, we're talking crazy, apocalyptic, let's use rudimentary <laughs> sports to to exemplify this world that we're living in. And any chance I got to see rollerball, not rollerball, <laughs> see, it's on the brain now. Any chance I got to see motorball being played uh, as it was introduced on the street to the big arena. I thought that was going to be like what we're going to be centering on. Like, oh, man, she's going to become a motorball champion. Fantastic. And anytime I got to see that the whole sequence with her fighting off all of these vigilantes that were going after her, I absolutely loved that. Like, I was glued to the screen watching each sequence. I think that as much as I love the slow-mo, it was a little heavy-handed at times, but there were some fantastic visuals there. Like, there were some sequences where we see her spinning and we get, I mean, it's in truth, it's Michael Bay doing it's, it's Michael Bay type filmmaking where you have this parallax of things happening. You have like one thing rotating one way and then she's rotating the other and it's kind of cool. But I think that any, any of the, any of those sequences really stood out to me because I think Rodriguez knew how to frame a lot of the shots to give us that full kind of visual impact of what was going on. Um, I thought early on that, I wouldn't really dig the the big eyes <laughs> of Alita, but like I mentioned, I think about ten minutes in, I was completely like ignorant of that. Like her facial expressions really helped sell me on the fact that that wasn't something odd. It was just who she was. It was just a, it wasn't a deformity. It was just who she was as a as a as a person, as a cyborg, as a creature. And she became very beautiful. Man, I, I loved looking at her, which I, I know that makes me sound creepy, but. <laughs> I mean, she's just, I think her character is a beautiful character that's been created. And seeing the original actress, um, I think it's a great adaptation, ironically.
1: Yeah, I think Rosa Salazar looks amazing as the character in this, and the performance stands out as well. Um She brings a lot of emotion to that character in the face that, I mean, it's just, it's truly impressive. The scenes may not stand up to that emotion, but she does her job within them, if that makes sense. And it was a strange ab- a choice. It was a very ballsy choice, to put it bluntly, to go with the oversized eyes. Now that's, that's a traditional thing, right? I think that this is one of the first times, if not the first time ever, that a live action film has tried to replicate the anime style oversized aisles that, that anime and manga are known for. Um, I, loved it. Cameron has said that he was very intrigued by that challenge. Go figure him, the visual guy. He wanted to figure out how to make photorealistic human character completely in CG. Sounds like it worked because you were able to displace it and just think it was real world. So, I mean, I felt pretty much the same way. I stopped realizing it was a CG world. I didn't, I mean, I'm sure that I know, I knew that on some very, you know, specific level, but I didn't, Enjoy it as if it was CG. I I felt like, you know, the stacks looked very much like a ready player one world. Honestly, the way that the city was designed in its post-apocalyptic, the city, you know, of Zalem up up in the sky reminded me of the spaceship in District 9. It felt like those worlds as much as it did. Yeah, a, a fake one, computer generated one.
0: Well, and I think for me, what what did that was the fact that we get this blending of human and cyborg in the character designs and I'll use Alita as an example, we've got this human head with a cyborg body. And we've got these blending of these types of things within the world. Like we've got some that are more obvious, like some of the, some of the, um, the, what are they called? Help me out. The battle destroyers, the, the bounty hunters, There are several of them that have human like faces, but clearly they're mechanical bodies. And I think her design represents a visual representation of how far technology has come in terms of filmmaking and blending the world of mechanical and organic. So I think within the story, we get that. But I think in some ways, it's Cameron's love letter, his statement to the world that Look how realistic we've gotten. Look how technology has allowed us to let our audience not even think about that. Ex Machina is the same way. We have this believability in facial expressions, knowing that a character is not human, but we forget about that and almost to a point of not caring until we're reminded of it. Like later on in the movie, I think Hugo has asked how could you love you know, a, a hard, hard body or a hard something? In other words, how, how could you love a, a cyborg? And he's like, I just can't, essentially. And so I think what, what Cameron does successfully is he gives us believability by blending as opposed to trying to make us believe that these are real by creating. Like, for instance, with the, with the Na'vi, we clearly know that these guys are CG because we've never seen them. They don't exist in the real world. And in some ways, neither do characters like Alita. but her facial expressions, the way she's built from the neck up is very much human apart from her eyes. And I think that that's a smart move because he understands the face is probably the most believable part of our humanity, that we see the window to the soul and that facial expressions connect us with, with other people. And so I'd like to think that from a creative standpoint, that's what he was doing, was he was saying, If I can get you into the world, the easiest way to do that is to give you something that you're familiar with and attach it to something that is more fantastic.
1: I would definitely agree with all of that. And, you know, I enjoyed a ton seeing the different bounty hunters when we got into the bar area and got to meet different ones like the dog master and just some of the great designs that they had. It really started. Pretty soon, honestly, when we get the first fight scene, I was just wowed. I mean, it was when uh, Gariska showed up for the first time and Alita jumps in to go after Ido, who she thinks is been murdering girls, and he's got this rocket-powered sky. That is one of the coolest weapons I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I, I just that thing that thing was memorable to me. The way that it's framed, the way it comes into the screen. And it gets focused on coming out of a cloud of, of, you know, smoke. It's very anime and, and was very, very faithful to the way it was done in the anime itself. I loved that weapon. I think that all stems from the fact that Iron City has banned guns. So there's no, no firearms in this area. So all we get is cool swords and bludgeoning type of weapons. And those that can be designed in a way that is unique and fresh and interesting as opposed to. How am I going to shoot you with, you know, a bigger gun? Basically, it's all projectile-type weapons. And so I really enjoyed that. That initial fight, there's a girl that has, like, sword arms. Literally, her arms are just swords. Like, she, I mean, they were just so freaking awesome looking. And, and that fight scene, oh, I just love the way the fight scenes were shot. Um I, I too, didn't care for the overuse of slow motion. I don't know if it's overuse. They didn't use it a ton. It, it was kind of used sparingly, but I didn't. I think it was necessary. The only yeah. one that I felt maybe made sense was the really cool shot that we're going to actually use in some of our marketing, I think, where she's coming in through the spinning arm that Grishka fires off, the tentacle thing. When she's coming through that, it makes sense for her to go in slow motion about to do the Superman punch because she gets cut in half or, you know, chopped all to pieces at that point. And but, so that's kind of cool to see, but for the most part slow motion didn't do it for me. Motorball is awesome. I would have loved to seen more motorball as well. I can only imagine that it must play into the proposed or planned, you know, future film down the road because what we see when she leaves off is that she's about to go enter the competition to try and become the champion. And so I'm assuming that's when we would get a lot more of a motorball centric story. But yeah, what a cool design for a sport. Um Little teaser for those that are listening to this, the first few days of release, uh, Jeremy Calcara, who is one of our contributors here at Feel and Film, he runs our Facebook discussion group polls every Wednesday that we do now. And I can tell you up front that the poll for this Wednesday is going to be about your favorite fictional sport. So I'm excited to see what kind of discussion comes about, but that's all because of motorball. And so, Patrick, you'll be able to go and talk about Robo Ball or whatever the other one was that...
0: Rollerball, yeah, James Conn.
1: Yeah, that one. Um, The other thing with the design for me is this felt to me like I was watching Final Fantasy, a video game. I mean, the way that the world plays out with the city in the sky versus the iron city below and the kind of underground criminal aspect and a little bit of a love story going on. Like, it felt to me cyberpunky like Final Fantasy in a very good way. So I, I kind of enjoyed... A lot of that. Did you catch the Jai Courtney cameo? No, I did not. You know who Jai Courtney is? No, no, I did not. Yeah, he was the rollerball champion. Motorball. Goodness gracious. He was the motorball champion, either the king or whatever he was. They showed him briefly when the very first time they were in the arena and she was in the pit
0: meeting some of
1: the characters. Yeah, okay. That was him.
0: That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, so that was cool. And and I think it was uh, near the end, uh, the – our main baddie, we get to see him take his glasses off who that was. That was, uh, that was nice.
1: Yeah. We're going to, we're going to talk about him though. When okay. okay. To the end, I think, because okay. yeah, that was, that was crazy. That was okay. un, unexpected to say. <laughs> very, the least. very well, let's dig into the theme. So going a little forward here from the action sequences with regards to the overall world building as in plot and characters, not necessarily the look of them. I'm, I want to know what intrigued you the most. This film has a ton of character subplots going on. We have Ito's revenge. We have Ito's need to replace his daughter versus um, Shuren's desire to move on and their divorce. We have this organized crime structure that's run by Nova, but it's through Vector, his like long arm down on the ground. We have Hugo, who's got this idea of chasing his dream to get to Zellum, and then we have the
0: romance. Was there any particular storyline that you latched onto? It's interesting that you rank them that way, or you said them that way, because that's basically how I rank them in terms of my intrigue. I love the family dynamic here. I love the fact that we have Shirin and uh, how she and this relationship with her husband has this intriguing backstory. And there's this incredible grief going on with how they're, how they're dealing with this. And how he brings about Alita as a means to work through his grieving process, and I love that that kind of trinity dynamic—his relationship with with Chiron, his relationship with Alita, and her relationship with Chiron—how that begins to flesh itself out. I I think that's the one I latched onto the most because it felt like the one that had the most emotional impact. Like there there are pockets of scenes where where he and Sharon are they're talking to each other particularly when they're talking when we're getting the the backstory a little bit as they're walking down the road I feel like there's still like a relationship there and it feels a lot like the stories that I hear either played out in real life or in movies where you have two parents who have a child and that that child dies in like a car accident or they they pass away suddenly And now the parents don't have anything to connect. Like that child was their world. And with that child being gone, it sort of severed their relationship. And I felt like that's something that we got because that's a very real thing. And I was curious to see how that was going to play itself out. I mean, clearly she, Sharon, still loved him or at least loved what he could bring to her world. But there was a lot of brokenness between the two of them. And I, I really latched onto that more than anything else.
1: Yeah, you know, I agree. I liked the themes in this film. And I thought that they made a lot of sense for the story we were being told. But I really struggled with connecting deeply to them because of what you said. And what I kind of said in the, the opening one word takeaway section everything felt incomplete. Nothing... Seemed to get wrapped up in a, in the right way for me. The idea of Ido wanting to make Alita his daughter probably overall was the the closest thing to being something really powerful for me throughout the film. I think it got a decent arc to it, um, with giving her new body and you know his daughter's body and getting to learn about that, giving her his daughter's name. And there's a great moment when he gives her her name. Uh, his assistant she has just this really subtle kind of. Eye movement look on her face, like, why did you just do that? And I thought I I noted it and I was like, hmm, there's something going on with the way reason she has that name. And of course there was. So I, I love how that kind of played out. I did not care as much for her seemingly, I don't know, conflict with Zapan. Like it, it some of this just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I needed I think again, I needed it to be longer. For her to suddenly have this beef with every other bounty hunter on the planet and them to forego this code that they have amongst themselves and want to kill each other felt very forced and very fast. Um, it didn't, it felt like she suddenly had an arch villain in a matter of minutes. <laughs> that, that was one of the things that I needed. I, the time aspect of this film was really off for me. It felt like it was happening over a few days. And then yeah. in, Regards to that, it makes the action not make a lot of sense because you're like, how did all this stuff progress so fast? Like, yeah, the characters seem to like grow together in an instant. She's like, I give you my heart, and I'm like, I I was rolling my eyes because I was like, how you met him yesterday? According to what I know of the film has told me. Also, the characters seem to do a complete 180 of their core values at some point in the in the film. Most of them. So even though Ito is super protective of Alita, he seems to be okay with letting her play the sport when it serves their purpose. The one that really bothered me the most, though, was uh, Sharon's character, Jennifer Connolly, who doesn't have a lot to do, but then shows up at the most opportune time at the last second when it's incredibly deus ex machina necessary to be a surgeon and save Hugo from death by chopping his head off and somehow keeping him plugged in and alive when up until that point she had had nothing to do with that and i guess the movie wants us to believe that she walked by and she sees alita sad and she changes completely in that moment and and it just felt very jarring to me and it felt unearned because i didn't have so much time with that character does that make sense
0: i think the word you're looking for is a lack of agency that we could probably believe that a lot of stuff happened off screen over that extended period of time that we weren't aware of that brought these characters to the moments that we saw them. That bar sequence in particular and the you have my heart sequence probably frustrated me more than anything because what you said earlier about Elita's performance and how... It probably wasn't done justice in the scenes that she was in. I think some of that had to do with the writing. This, there were pockets of these of, of this movie that felt very much like prequel George Lucas writing where I know enough about the actors to say, no, they're better than this. And at, at some point, you're just given the lines that you're given and you have to say them. And the bar sequence of her trying to make this proclamation... I actually found it pretty, pretty meta that after she tried to convince the folks in the bar to join her, how they all laughed and how essentially people were, they were making fun of her speech. And I was like, yeah, I'm laughing too because that doesn't, you didn't, you haven't done anything to earn that. And it was only when you put the blood of the dog on your, on your eyes and went after one of these big dudes that, oh yeah, you're going to believe them. But even that didn't really suit. And, I think the biggest thing for me is that she comes across as a teenager because that's how she's built. But in some ways, because of how much she turns, how much she goes from like teenage, eye batting, love, this boy named Hugo to this like badass (laughs) angel. It's not believable to me. And it almost makes her come across as kind of a kind of a an overzealous teenager, like you've made me mad. And so I'm going to take it out by being being a meanie. I'm going to be a mean girl at this point. And I didn't really care for that. I felt like it was not she didn't feel like an adult, like even even after she got her suit, she didn't feel like an adult. She felt like a teenager. And it a lot of the stuff felt very adolescent. And I don't know that that really worked for me. In fact, I know it didn't. Because anytime she would say something that made me want to feel like she was saying something important, it wasn't like the Katniss that was saying it because we didn't have enough stuff going on prior to that to make me feel like, yeah, she's young, but she's been through a lot. No, she hasn't been through a lot. She was just playing motorball in the streets two days ago, and now she's cutting these guys' heads off and spinning 360, getting herself cut up. So like you, I think it just, the rushness of it and the the pacing, along with the lack of agency, felt like I wasn't getting the whole story.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I, I feel like I'm harping on it, but that's what it all boils down to for me too. Is I just I, I I didn't hate it. I didn't not like the story. That's the thing. Like I enjoyed the idea of her going into that bar and exerting some false level of confidence like she's going to take them all on and she's just going to demand that she's a part of them without any bit of earning it i I enjoyed the idea that someone would do that i just didn't buy that someone would do that after day one and and that you know this all manifested itself perfectly with the romance that frankly i don't mind romance in anime and it was not done that great in the anime that I watched, the anime version of this that I watched today, but it was done better. It was not nearly as melodramatic as it is in this. There's so many moments here where it's like, I would die for you and we don't belong anywhere except together. Like, It was so bad, Patrick. I kid you not. I actually rolled my death, rolled my eyes, sorry, rolled my eyes at Hugo's death. I, I wanted to barf. I was like, you don't belong here. The pro- Hugo gave me all kinds of a fit. Not only because he looks like Heath Ledger, but he looks like a pretty Heath Ledger, okay? (laughs) He is a pretty man or pretty boy. He is clean to the T compared to everybody else in this world. He felt out of place like none other. He didn't feel like a dirty mechanic that was living on the streets, trying to earn his way to Zellum by, you know, sneakily harvesting parts of Cyborgs. He felt like just so off to me the whole time. And... I don't know that he's not i don't know if he was i don't know what kind of actor he is as far as his talent level, but I sure didn't see it in these scenes. I felt like his acting just didn't correspond to the rest of the story at all and it and it made me rather annoyed and check out when he came on screen and there was any kind of like romantic or relationship building stuff happening,
0: yeah there's a um there's the moment when he has his head surgically removed and he's still living that I think was a big disappointment for me because as you and I know, we enjoy steaks, the food and the storytelling device. And I would not have minded that moment when, when, when Chiron does what she does, had we not gotten The scene later on where he actually dies because you've essentially devalued that moment, which I think is kind of brilliant, by the way. I think it's a great way to gain the system (laughs) and essentially get what you want, have your cake and eat it too. But for him to die eventually anyway just completely devalues both of those moments. I would rather have, I would rather him have died either then or later when he does having not been mechanically recreated but then again he probably wouldn't have been able to climb that giant sewer sewer line or whatever it was that connects the the upworld to the you know to the city below which as a side note by the way I love the defense mechanism I think that's really cool the the blades that come down I forget what it's called but yeah it that relationship was unnecessary I don't think it gave her any kind of agency to do anything that she did. She's got enough of that with her, quote, father and the mission at hand. I think that relationship was cheap. I think that the line, you have my heart, that was the biggest eye roll for me. And it only kind of came back, the eyes came back to my head when, when she was like, I'm literally giving you my heart. You can sell that on the black market. And I was like, are you kidding me? Is this an SNL sketch? What's going on here? I, I, mm, romance has to be believable. Yeah. And if you're going to be cheesy, if you're going to be hokey, you convinced me from the beginning and you didn't do that.
1: Right. That's what I was, again, rushed. It's just rushed. It can be there. It's fine if you want to put a romance in this movie, in this story, but it's got to play out over two or three movies. It can't be all in one. And this gave it to us all in one. Like, And now I'm supposed to believe that she's going to carry this grief with her for the rest of her life. It's going to fuel her. You knew him for frickin' three days, lady. Like, I, anyway, harping on it aside. These are the themes that I still find intriguing. I just didn't find it intriguing in the way that they put them together, as we've said several times. And I love the idea of Nova Apai running this Criminal underworld down below, like the way that the city is set up. I really wanted to know about the Falmore and the United Republics of Mars attacking and what that all meant. And, and I, I all this stuff that I'm sure comes out in the sequels. That stuff got me very intrigued. I told you before we started recording that this movie reminds me of Elysium a ton, where you have the cybernetic enhanced person trying to use those abilities to get to the place where all of the upper class are living while the lower class suffer down below because they want to take it down. It, it really felt like that
0: um, in but a big way. But here's where I thought the intrigue of that differed from Elysium, in that we never got to see that world. We only got the perspective of it from the people that either have experienced it, supposedly, or those that were making up stories about it in order to keep people in the city below or to get them towards it. Like, I love the line, and I think it's Vector, you can essentially live like a king down here, or you can be at the low end of the food chain up there. So even up there, it sounds like there's still a class system that exists that we don't know about. That I love. I love the fact that that actually stayed mysterious. And I think that's something that we will be able to discover in a sequel, like, oh, what is this place really like? Does it is it like Elysium or is it something completely different? Because yeah, I got that same kind of vibe.
1: Yeah, I did too. And that's part of why I'm still sort of excited about the next movie. It's such a weird place. I'm in with this whole thing. It's it's very strange. Well, the biggest theme that goes throughout this film is one that I actually rather enjoyed. And that seems to be all about Alita's search for identity. Go figure, you and I have said many times how much we like exploring the idea of stories where someone is searching for an identity. And in this one, that is revealed through her as being drawn to conflict as it is described at one point because of her warrior past. She also states that I do not stand by in the presence of evil. And later on, she says, it's all or nothing with me. This is who I am. I love those parts of her character as they begin to develop and she begins to remember and kind of figure out who she is. They come out the right way. And I think that they carry the film through its inconsistent subplots, if you will. My question around this for us is, do you think that she comes to be who she is, this warrior princess of sorts, because she's designed that way? Or do you get the sense that she's making a choice? Do you, do, you, do you ever get the feeling that she could discover who she used to be and decide that's not who she wants to be or needs to be
0: now? I like this theme a lot. And there was another word that I was thinking about as I was leaving the theater that connected with this theme. And that's the word rehab. Because I feel like at the very beginning of the, no, not <laughs> – no, not that I need rehab or anything like that or that this drove me to – Drinking or to drugs, but you're looking at me like I'm doing something wrong. Lead a
1: battle angel causes therapy. <laughs> Put that on the poster.
0: I was thinking about my rehab whenever I had my leg injury, when I was injured in my running accident and how, okay, first of all, I wasn't the greatest runner. I've never have been, but I've enjoyed it enough to, to begin to do it. And it became very therapeutic for me. And up until my accident, it became a place of, Of kind of stress relief for me. Like if I was having a rough day or I needed to clear my head, I would go for a run. And I still do that to this day, uh, which spoiler alert tells you that my rehab worked. But I remember when I got, I got hit and I was worried when I found out that I had to have knee surgery and that it was going to be potentially up to a year before I could, I could run again. And there were moments during that year where I was very uh, my depression really kicked in, where I was able to—I had to rely on other people, and there were things that I had to relearn. And so I'm thinking about Alita, and early on, I feel like that's what she's doing. She doesn't know who she is. It's almost like she's been hit by a car. She's she's got amnesia. She doesn't know who she is, and it's less about finding your identity, searching for your identity, more about rediscovering it and reinventing it. And so to answer your question, I really think that it's more of her making a choice because. Her capabilities have always been there. They will always continue to be there. Obviously, they've never gone away. But she has made the choice, based on her current circumstances, to look at the world in a different way, partly because she doesn't have that past to fall back on. But we find out later, as she discovers more, as she starts having these flashbacks, that she sees herself in her past, and she still chooses to live A certain way either because of them or in spite of them. And so I think more than anything, this is a choice because she is not being denied her abilities, her not need, but her ability to fight and to be this battle angel as she's called, but she's using it for a, a different purpose for one that comes from her current heart, her current mindset. And so I think it's more of a choice than anything else. It's It may be driven innately, by how she's built or how she's created but her choices help kind of navigate that in a way that i think is very human honestly like we have the id the ego and the super ego and i think the id is where she's coming from but that super ego i think is where she's being able to harness it and control it in a way that she feels like is good
1: well we're gonna go back and say the same thing again or i am gonna go back and say the same thing again because i agree and i think that it would have worked even better over long form storytelling because the things that drive her to that change, they exist in this film. The relationship with Hugo affects that her growing relationship with Ito and understanding that he lost a daughter and that he's now lonely and kind of misses his wife and he's become this bounty hunter. And then her experience becoming a bounty hunter, all of this informs the decision that she would be making to Become that battle angel again of her own free will this time, potentially, because we don't know how she got to be that way the first time. And unfortunately, it's just all condensed so much that it's, it's a little rushed, but it, it all the pieces are there. And I actually want to read a quote that came in our Facebook group today, um, while chatting about the movie, one of our patrons and listeners, Dave Courtney, he loves movies like this and Mortal Engines, which I'm going to bring up again later. But he was praising the storytelling. And he had a lot of great analysis. But this is something he said that stuck out and kind of fits in here. He said, but what the story ultimately shines a light on is that what makes us who we are is a strong heart, not our mind, not our ability, but our heart. That is at the core of who we are. And the image of the two bodies for Alita which was also such a powerful picture of adoption when you consider it in light of what that body represents, it hit home that we are not bound to what society says we are. We are given our bodies, but it is the heart that gives us the ability to make choices in one direction or another for the good or bad or the oppressed. And I thought that was brilliantly put, and that is exactly what I think the film portrays with Alita's character. I think this is one of the best parts of the movie is her progression through her identity. Do I think it could have been done better and would have been played out you know, even more successfully in long form? Yeah, I do. But it worked even in the condensed storytelling, I think.
0: I would agree with pretty much all of what he says. I think what he's doing, though, is he's filling in gaps. And that's good. Movies should allow us to think and to fill in gaps, especially when the movie does something that we disagree with, because we say, well, what if this happened? You know, if it were my daughter, I would do this or those types of things. And honestly, any time you can get a film to evoke something like that, it's doing something successfully. And that's the great thing about the subjectivity of art is that it can fall on a different set of eyes and ears to each one of its audience members. And you can pull that kind of stuff away. We both agreed with that. And I think the way it was presented to us subjectively didn't work as well as it did for Dave. And that's fine. And the fact is, I celebrate the fact that he got that and that he got to experience those things. And it's something worth considering if we go back and see this movie again, especially in light of a sequel. I figured I will probably watch it again if we, if I end up going to see the sequel because you want a running start for anything like that, right? Right. But the other thing that I think is important is, You can make the argument that, yes, the heart is literally at the center of this and figuratively. But at the same time, that would work for me if I didn't have the scene of her pulling her heart out and saying, you can have my heart and you could sell it on the black market. At the same time, though, the way she sacrifices and the way she says, look, it's not my literal heart that matters in this whole sequence. You're right. It's the spirit of who she is and what she's willing to do for the people around her that I think falls in line with what he's talking about. So the acknowledgement of this theme is something I completely agree with, but it has a bit too many gaps for me to fill in in order to get to where he is.
1: Agreed. And and the thing with the heart is, is brilliant, honestly, because it's a heart that is a some sort of fusion reactor core from the past, technology that no longer exists, that is so strong that gives her this ability. In essence, it's telling us this society has lost the ability to have this kind of power, which in this case is her making choices for good that they've lost their heart in a lot of ways. So it's got a lot of metaphor that's worked into it. Yeah. And that's where I get confused too. It's like, we're, we're playing with a deeply sci-fi metaphorical story, but we're doing it in the cheesy anime world at the same time. And you're trying to put those things together and they don't go together very well. Mm -hmm. Like you can do one or the other, usually pretty darn good. Yeah. But when you try to marry them, it gives us a little bit of a, of a strangeness to
0: it. Yeah. There's a, there's a wow factor that comes for me in, in Dave's commentary though about the picture of adoption, something I did not pick up at all. And, and he's right. It's a great visual. And I think it's the subtlety of that that really intrigues me because a lot of this other stuff feels really on the nose and it may, it may be in tribute to the style. But as you and I know, our favorite types of storytelling are those that are more subtle. And if you're going to be obvious, you're going to be overly obvious and you're going to be very meta about that obviousness. And I think that that particular moment, that kind of idea uh, or that symbolism, it may not have been intentional. And I think that that makes it even more intriguing is that you can pick up on that in light of some of the some of the themes that that he picked up on. So so kudos, Dave. That was that's good stuff.
1: Anybody who's in the Facebook discussion group or if you're not you can come join it and do this. Go read that post uh, from Dave Courtney. I believe it's somewhere on uh, somebody else's review of Alita that they posted within the last couple of days and he's got he's got some really great analysis that goes a lot deeper and says some positive things that I probably wouldn't agree with, but you know, he says them and maybe you should read that and consider for yourself. Well, the last thing Patrick, you alluded to this a little bit earlier when you brought up the ending and How it had this wild simultaneously effect of kind of being like, huh, what? And then, wow, awesome, at the same time. It kind of plays out like this. Alita falls in love. She can't save Cyborg Hugo. She really quickly learns of the controlling Nova, who is dun-dun-dun-dun Edward Norton in a confusing twist. Very much Matt Damon in Interstellar-like reveal, to be honest here. He runs Zellum and the Iron City Thugs, and then... We end on this emotionally sweeping music that moves to her setting out to becoming a motorball champion to earn her way to Zellum and kill Nova and him with a little grin, like, Hey, hey bring it. Um, you know, come on. Let's do this thing. I you know, dare you. The ending in this movie. Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Did you just LOL? <laughs> what, how did this go for you?
0: Here's what went through my head. The credits roll. And I'm thinking, Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Alita Battle Angel on the Anime Movie Network from James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez. That's kind of where I landed on it. I, as I mentioned before, this is is what made me intrigued about the sequel. Because I like Edward Norton, I love Motorball, and I'm like, I'm ready for that. I really hope most of the sequel takes place in arenas
1: around with edward norton watching her play motorball exactly don't need a story just like give us two hours of that and exactly. you're
0: good <laughs> exactly you know it's played out like an actual sporting event and i'm okay with that i think that i don't know man i it's just i'm in the weird place too because i want to see the follow-up to this <laughs> <laughs> but only because of the last (laughs) 10 minutes of the movie. So I'm like, good, Hugo's gone. Let's focus on Motorball and Alita and Edward Norton. (laughs) It's going to be great. I
1: I legitimately let out words that we can't say on this podcast because of our nice, clean rating. I actually was like muttering, what the, under my breath, like when this went down, I couldn't believe it. It is some of the most shameless sequel baiting I think I've ever seen in my entire life, right? And ultimately, I thought, like too many modern franchises, that this movie presumes that the audience is going to want countless entries, and instead of just telling your own story and being complete and com- and in totality fulfilling within itself, it it just tried too hard to set up the future. Now, did I enjoy that? Yes, but it's going to frustrate me if this movie doesn't make enough money to get the sequels. Our buddy Gabriel Green, who's uh, the co-host of the Franchise Fatigue podcast, in his review on Letterboxd, he said something about how he couldn't help but wonder, with the pieces that were there, what this movie would have been like if James Cameron had actually focused 100% on this passion project and let Avatar go, or not try to do them at the same time, and if James Cameron had been behind the camera. He said, what would have been like if the Master was behind the camera as well, much like the question we had with Mortal Engines, where Peter Jackson produced and helped develop that story, but he wasn't the one directing it. And you could tell, like, it was so different because of that. The vision didn't quite come through. Part of me thinks that the only person that can direct James Cameron's dialogue and the way that he thinks is James Cameron. And that's a a knock on this. Like, that's part of why it just doesn't go the right way. Because I, I don't know, man. I ultimately... All of these kinds of negative things I've said, or I don't even know if they're negative. They're just like, ugh, frustrations. I walked out of the movie out of three stars, okay? And I was like, I enjoyed that because it was fun. But I have no desire to ever see it again, and I'm not going to think about it. I woke up today thinking about it and thinking about where the sequel could go. And I sought out the anime, and I was like, hmm, yeah, I'm actually really intrigued by this world. And so... I'm simultaneously not in love with this film, but I also really want to go see it again, and I kind of want to own it, and I think I will, and I, as much as I don't know why I would watch it again over and over, I feel like I might. And so (laughs) it is such a weird place for me with this movie that I can give you the reasons why I didn't like it, but my head says, turn it on again, Aaron.
0: It's um it's just maybe it's an addictive drug maybe it's the 4K TV in you that you're like I want to see what this looks like in 4K It probably
1: is um but yeah with Edward Norton I I too I love that reveal I thought it was really great and honestly it makes me want to see more so I think I didn't love the, the way the film wrapped up in the context of this movie by itself but
0: we both want to see what happens so whether by watching it or by reading about it, I there guess. Is that? Yeah. I don't even want to read about
1: it. I want to see it, man. It was gorgeous. Like, the visual style of this film was amazing. I yeah. I want to see it. I yeah. want to see Edward Norton again.
0: Just don't give Alita another love interest because that'll be... Yeah, there we go. That'll be okay.
1: Yeah, let's just be done with the romance, go into part two and keep it intrigue, action. Maybe you have somebody other than Cameron adapt it. I don't know. You can do the visuals. Let somebody else write.
0: Yeah, I would agree.
1: Well, connecting points. Connecting points are... Always positive. I think they've always been positive. I can't think of a negative connecting point that we've ever had.
0: The fact that we have one, I think, speaks to our positive honesty. That's true. That is very true. Because we give ourselves the grace of saying, I didn't have a connecting point, which rarely happens. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we definitely had a connecting point in this one.
1: Yeah, we did. And I probably could have given you a couple, um, a couple lesser ones that weren't very strong. The connecting point I chose is truly a moment that did move me. It's when Alita wakes up in her berserker suit after she's been shredded by Garishka. Ito's daughter's body has been destroyed and he is now basically forced to put Alita into the berserker suit as she had previously desired and he had refused to do. And when she wakes up, she walks over to him and he's resting on the couch and he's just waking up and she kisses him on the cheek. It is so sweet and it started to get me emotionally invested right away as she was doing that. And then we see her proceed to start showing off and testing out some of her new body's flexibility, doing gymnastics and and seeing what the strength is in the suit. And I loved it, man. She was genuinely excited about getting something she wanted and about something that she felt helped define who she was. And so after this, Ito gives her one of the best lines in the film. He affirms her new body, essentially, and encourages her by saying, Now you know who you are, but that's just a shell. It's not bad or good. That part's up to you. And it ends with her lying next to him in his arms on the couch. And it really gave me a feeling of a real father-daughter relationship at work you know as Dave pointed out earlier this is the moment where I felt like she was adopted like they they had completely come for full circle now and I enjoyed that scene so immensely because of it and I desperately wanted more emotional moments that connected with me like that scattered throughout this film um, but, because but, that one just, that one was perfect. It, the, the tone was great. The pace of it was great. Uh, the acting was, was outstanding. We haven't even mentioned Christoph Waltz as Edo, but he was wonderful. He was, he was kooky and loving. And I thought he was w- just perfectly cast. And this moment brought out all of that stuff at once. That identity theme. Ah, ah it's just so sweet. The kiss on the cheek thing is the lingering image in my mind from this whole movie over all of the amazing cyborgs in the action. I remember her doing that because it meant something to me. So that was mine.
0: Yeah, I think quiet moments in the midst of a lot of action really stand out. Um, I'm a big fan of that. I think that um, when it's done really well, it becomes memorable. And apparently that was the way it was for you. This was I want to say this wasn't my connecting point, but this this contributed to it. Because immediately after that we get another scene, um, I would imagine it happened in close proximity to this last one, in terms of like timeline. I don't think it took place like five days later. It's when she's meeting up with Hugo and his friends, and she you know, he sees her with her new suit and they're talking, and then they take off and there's a line that one of his friends says And he feels very, like, uncomfortable about her being in this world. And this other member of this gang says, why? I mean, do you not like the fact that that she's a cyborg? And he goes, yeah, I'm not really uncomfortable with that. I mean, after all, she was the enemy or she was this, this group that attacked. And then he's told by her, he says, she says, that was 300 years ago. It doesn't matter. That was a long time ago. We've forgotten about that. And I love the fact that I think about forgiveness and I think about the fact that where you are now might have been affected by where you come from, but it's not who you are. You are who you are right now. Hilariously enough, it reminded me of the line from a night's tale where William says a man can change his stars. And I feel like Alita's journey is an attempt at doing that. It hinted at, it was hinted at early on when, She's rediscovering who she is uh, when she's learning about chocolate, which who knows if she liked that in her past life. But it's confirmed a bit in Ido's line that you mentioned earlier. I think it's a solid theme. And even though it didn't play out as strongly as I would have liked, it helps push the narrative further and it helps make it more obvious. And I think that when you can latch on to a theme, particularly if it's that visceral or if it's that personal to you, I think it elevates your appreciation of a movie. And I think Dave Courtney kind of epitomizes that because of moments like that, because of the the kiss and because of her. I love the fact that she lays next to him like a daughter, like that's an area of vulnerability. She's not kicking somebody's butt. I mean, she's really slowing down. And even the way that she tries out her new body, she's very delicate. It's very, it's very ballet like, and it's a different kind of tone. And that follow-up conversation reminds us as an audience that she's someone new. She might be living with an old body. She might be inheriting some pieces of her past. But this is who she is now, being loved by Hugo and and trying to figure out what she's going to be from here on out.
1: Yeah, that's good stuff, man. That's absolutely love it.
0: Well, this has been good. I will say this now. I will watch a sequel. If for no other reason than to see Motorball and Ed Norton, two things you can't say no to, right?
1: <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm all in for the sequel. I, it's weird. Like, I want one. I'm like you. I'm, I want it. And that's a very odd thing to feel about a three, three and a half star movie to be like, yeah, hey, I didn't love this. Take it or leave it. But give me more. It's, it's strange. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, It is what it is.
0: It is what it is. But that's what it is for this week. (laughs) All right. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll be bringing you a new FF Plus with our Oscar-nominated shorts discussion. That's the live-action documentary and animated shorts. And Aaron's going to be bringing you a review of How to Train Your Dragon 3. And there will possibly be some Oscar predictions coming up. Then, one day after our normal, regular episode recording, that will be on Tuesday, February 25th, It'll be our Oscar recap and 2019 Feelers' Choice Awards winner's announcement episode, so you won't want to miss that.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you.
0: We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way.
1: If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group.
0: I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you.
1: Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive.
0: Deep feeling film.